You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone. And welcome to the very first event of our program this week, which we have given the title, Who has the right to a future? My name is Susanne Kalutza, and I'm CEO here at the House of Literature. Titi Dangaremba's iconic novel, Nervous Conditions, was first published in 1988. Now it's finally available in a new and beautiful Norwegian translation by Merete Alfsen. The novel opens with the following words. I was not sorry when my brother died. With her trilogy of novels, Dangaremba unflinchingly examines who has the right to a future. Through the story of a girl fighting for equality, for her right to education, growing up in a colonized land where she, a black girl, is at the very bottom of the hierarchy. What made Dangaremba's books modern classics? And why should we still read them today? We have a very qualified panel to delve into Dangaremba's work with us tonight. Masa Megiste is the author of Beneath the Lion's Gaze and The Shadow King, both examining the history of her birth country, Ethiopia, through fiction. She cites Dangaremba as one of her literary inspirations. Tony Woll is a professor at the Department of Linguistics and Scandinavian Studies at the University of Oslo, and she wrote her thesis on Tsitsi Dangaremba's books, and Dangaremba also figures in Woll's book, Oleseverden, a book about world literature, post-colonial literature, and eco-criticism. Mariam Idris is the author of the novel Janniken Evangelia, a literary critic and a translator. And to lead the conversation, we have our former colleague, the author, and currently a part of our artistic council for our African literary project, Andreas Liebe Delset. Please give them all a very warm welcome. Good evening, everyone. Uh, very warm welcome from myself as well. Welcome, uh, Mariam, uh, Tonya, Masa. Um, I have to admit first that this is a rather emotional uh, thing for me, uh, just because, uh, I mean, between myself and Tonya, I think we have, I, can, I don't think I can count the number of times we have tried to get Norwegian publishers to, to take on these books. Um, uh, and we don't have to, finally, we don't have to spend any more time <laughs> talking about why they don't do it, because now someone finally did it. Uh, and a few days ago, we received this book, uh, and I opened, um, opened it, and I read the first couple of sentences, the one that Susanne read now, and a couple more, and I started crying, uh, because, I mean, first of all, what an opening of a book, and then, secondly, in Mereta Alfsen's translation, which has so beautifully uh, captured uh, Tsitsi Dagaemgo's style, in my opinion, and still, uh, so it's so distinct, but it's also so much closer uh, when it's in your own language. So I think this is a real gift. Um, and we will uh, talk today about nervous conditions and the rest of the trilogy a little bit as well. Um, and I wanted to start with you, Masa. I mean, where I, when I grew up, uh, the one who uh, we always uh, serve, the one who has traveled the furthest, uh, and you have traveled the furthest. 
uh, first. So we start with you. Um, uh, do you remember when you read the first sentences of Nervous Conditions? I remember how that sentence hit me. Um, I'm trying to think of what year it was, and I will say that um, I don't quite remember, but I, I do think it, it was more than 10 years ago. Uh, and what happened in my mind at that first sentence um, was that I, I felt um, an instant bridge uh, between Tsitsi's work and the work of another African writer that has been a huge influence to me, um, Amaata Edu. And in fact, it's, it's interesting that Titi has quoted her um, in other things, but I remember thinking, this book is about to affect me the same way that Amaata's book changed my life and uh, the possibilities I thought that fiction had. Um, Titi's words were shocking, that, that first sentence. Uh, but the book, it, it introduces us into the world of a young girl who is painfully and brutally honest and I think is trying through words to make sense of a world that is cruel and confusing. Um, yeah, and, and I, that, that first sentence introduced me to a, a world and a kind of thinking that felt shocking and breathtaking, but also uh, I could understand it. Tonya, you, I mean, as far as I can gather, you have been living with this, these books for, I mean, ever since they came, more or less. No, and not through exactly. Through your academic, yeah. whole academic endeavor. Feels like forever, yeah. certainly. But how did you, how did you uh, find them? How did they come to you? Well, I was in Zimbabwe in Harare at the time, and I was uh, so very lucky that I could um, get on board on um, a master course in media and development, I think it was called, um, which I didn't actually do media studies, but literature studies. So I was trying to find a way to do media studies with literature. And I was reading a lot of Zimbabwean uh, literature at the time, and I, I did a small thing on Shenzhou Hove and some children's literature and other things. But when I um, when I read Tsitsi Dangaremga, then I understood that, okay, so this is going to be the master thesis. Mm -hmm. because the, and, and, and I was so happy because that meant I was always also looking for a reason to come back. So I found the two. That's perfect. The topic and the reason to come back to Harare and stay there for some time. Well, then with you, Mariam, I mean, uh, you were not born, I think, when this book was published. Wait, <laughs> no, I was. Uh, <laughs> no, not quite. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's okay. I was only four at the time, so that's okay. Um, it's not my fault. No. But I, and I know <laughs> that you read it quite recently. Beginning of uh, April, I remember yeah. it well. <laughs> what was that like? I mean, you approached this as, as a classic. I mean, you knew that it, of its canonical uh, place. It's, it was a real blessing to have someone email me and say, I think you'll like this book. Please take the time to read this trilogy and then find that it was correct, that I did really, really enjoy it. And it'd been a little moment since I'd read a book that I could properly disappear into. 
I read a lot of short books lately. I wanted to properly like get uh, get into a bigger world, and uh, yeah, it was it was great. It was uh, really enjoyable. Wonderful. Yeah. We'll get back to some of the details of what you discovered later. Uh, but I was thinking maybe we should uh, try and also place Dagaremgo a little bit. Um, uh, Masa, you you have said once that Tsitsi uh, 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 Dagaremgo has been quietly changing the world for 30 years. Uh, can you pl- can you tell us what you meant by that and and a little bit more about who she is? Yeah, I I I have such a huge admiration. Uh, for Tsitsi, um, I don't know how to describe the the, ki- the quiet force that I think she has always been um, on the continent uh, and in Zimbabwe, but also for the literary world. Um, she is a writer that did not get much attention for a number of years in which she was working, and yet she was relentless in in her in her belief that words and imagination, and in particular her words and her imagination, could make a change in Zimbabwe, and that that change in Zimbabwe might be able to ripple out into the rest of the world. Um, She has been working to make these changes even when no one was paying attention, and that's what I mean by the quietness that it has been a deliberate, concentrated, focused, uh, a kind of activism that, that seeps, uh, seeps into her work, uh, but is also very politically motivated. I mean, we, um, we're sitting here today, a day after she was just acquitted uh, by the, the Zimbabwean Supreme Court for protesting, I think it was two years ago or three years ago, uh, she and one woman, Julia Barnes, standing on the side of a road in Zimbabwe with a sign. Um, and they were arrested and charged for inciting... Violence? Violence. Mm. Two women with a sign terrified a country. Uh, and that's the kind of quiet work that I find her doing, that even if she's alone or if um, if she's outnumbered, she will still be on the side of that road, not shouting, but holding up words. Uh, and that, for me, is a symbol. I mean, that's what I think of when I think of Tsitsi. Also in terms of her literary influence, I mean, I remember that um, when, she, when uh, Tsitsi was here the, for the first time in 2009, we had a program at the House of Literature uh, on, uh, on African literature, uh, and uh, she was her her own quiet self, so to speak, on stage. Uh, maybe it was even in conversation with you, Tonya. It was. Yeah. I think so. And mm-hmm. um, uh, and then after that conversation, or when it was approaching the end, um, all these writers stood up from the audience. People like Bettina Gappa, uh, Chika Onigwe from Nigeria. Um, Chimwanda Diche, also from Nigeria, standing up, um, attest, uh, testifying to the importance of her work uh, on them. And I think someone like Adiche said that she could never have written Purple Hibiscus if it wasn't for Tsitsi. Um, but if we are going to like start encircling the work, uh, Tonya, um, uh, uh, I mean, you were there when, when this happened, as I said. Uh, why 
What is it that makes Nervous Conditions a classic? I wasn't there when it happened because it came out in 1988. No, I mean like <laughs> when, when, the, when the people were standing up. But in when the, the people yeah. were standing mm. up, I think that was such an emotional moment and it really proved her importance for the, the uh, generation after her. And I mean the ge generation before her, like Chinua Achebe and Doris Lessing had already paid the tri tribute. And, and the extraordinary thing also is that she has only published these three novels. So the volume of her work is so, so small. And the last one just came in 2018. So even with the first one, she was this huge uh, literary influence and icon um, uh, and had this tremendous force that, uh, that new writers and readers, uh, especially in, in Southern Africa and Africa, of course, but also in, in the US and uh, also in Europe, could, um, could be overwhelmed by and influenced by and so on. And why this happened <coughs> is, as we were talking about, about the force of the first sentence, which really, I mean, it's so amazing that she has this uh, debut novel and, and it's in this little girl's voice. And the first sentence is, is, I was not sorry when my brother died. And not even the content, but she puts the I, the first word, actually, she puts in print in her first work is I, and it's a really powerful thing to do. Uh, and I think it has a lot to do with that I, um, that perspective of the little girl, uh, the nar narrator, Tambu, uh, and seeing, um, um, seeing her growing up uh, from the perspective of a village, of a village girl. And in the Zimbabwean literature at the time, uh, in 1970s and 1980s, which were really lots of quality literature. Um, uh, it wasn't that <laughs> usual, to say at least, to have um, girls with tampons or uh, uh, giggling and smoking and uh, ma making uh, war with their parents and and uh, developing eating disorders or mothers having uh, uh, postnatal depressions, that wasn't the main topics. Um, these were post-colonial or decolonial times. It was just after, so to speak, the Chimarenga War, and, and um, literature was mostly concerned with the same themes as she is concerned, like the so-called modernity, so-called tradition, the, coll uh, the collective, um, decolonization, and so on, but, but from a more masculine point of view, and from the more history as such, uh, than this family, which is the center of uh, nervous conditions. So she put um, a feminist uh, analysis, very political, very brave, into the voice of a, a small girl growing up in, uh, in, uh, near to Mutara in Zimbabwe. And it had a tremendous effect. And this is, I mean, we, we are, when, when, when uh, Tambu is not sorry for a brother dying, this is in, in the mid-60s, uh, in the times of Rhodesia, right? So, uh, and it, it's, I think it's just after the war uh, that the Zimbabweans refer to as the second Chimurenga has started, the war for liberation. Uh, but yet the, the war is not present in the novel. Um, which confused me because I, I mean, when I was, I read it as a student in, in South Africa uh, and someone said like this, look, you have to read this to understand what Zimbabwe is. Uh, 
Well, how, I mean, a whole novel about during the war, but without mention of the war. What can we make of that? The war does come, though, in the Book of Not, I guess. Um, to me, it's Tambu's character. The most interesting thing about her character is her ability to shut those things out. It says quite a lot about her as a person, I think. And it, it's what I found most evocative about her narration is this ability to try to forget about things, to try and forget about the blood, try and forget about all these uh, all these uh, instances of extreme trauma until they catch up to her, I guess, at moments of of, uh, of extreme passion, I guess, in the in the text. Mm. I think that's one of the strongest points of, of the novels, the whole trilogy, really. Mm. Mm. But, I mean, um, we hail this as a classic of African literature, um, of post-colonial literature and so on. Um, uh, but I somehow have this feeling, and maybe this is why we have to some extent have been struggling to have Norwegian publishers take on this book, is because uh, maybe some of these categories stand in the way. Uh, when I, re- I reread uh, Dagarimgua, uh, Nervous Conditions, I mean, uh, yeah, last year, before she was um, coming to be included in the future library of the Dekman Library here in Oslo. Um, I mean, uh, I was struck by the um, and, and reading it later, much later after having read it in South Africa and so on. That it's you can read it uh, on so many other levels than a book about Zimbabwe. Do you agree? What in what way do you prefer to read it? <laughs> well, um, you know, I've never I've never been to Zimbabwe, and. Uh, so I don't know very much about the community that she writes about. Um, and yet for me, when I picked up the book, it's a story about a young girl trying to make sense of her place in a world that is trying to push her in one direction while she is trying to move in the way that she wants to move, but she's too young to really know yet what she wants. Uh, and so this, for me, this felt like a book about understanding or trying to make or create options in in your world uh trying to understand why you feel a certain way or why you're pressured to do certain things in your family um the place of a young girl in in a family where the men rule right from the patriarchal uncle you know to the father but also to her brother um, what do you do as a girl when you're being told that you have to live your life in a certain way and yet inside you is another force that's saying that's not the way you really want to do it? Um, and that I could absolutely you know, relate to. I think, um, I think all of us at some point uh, as girls come to we're forced to understand the bodies that we exist in. We're forced to suddenly recognize, oh, this is what it means to be a girl. And uh, that, for me, was a story. That was the story that I could really connect to. Um, and she, she, I think the power of Tsitsi's book uh, is that she moves from the world of this girl to this girl looking at other women in, in her life and then seeing all the different choices these women make or are forced to make 
and saying, what do I do in this? Um, and that, that for me was, uh, I mean, I've read this now a, a few times and it's just every single time I get something else out of it. Yeah, and I think we'll have to add into this uh, mix also uh, the topic of female friendship and, um, and the topic also of, of um, an intelligent girl seeking a way, which is also very uh, strong and, and remarkable in the book. You really get to... Um, Dan Gremge has this, um, this ability to, to, on the one hand, look at her characters with sort of an ironic distance and making small comments on them and you're like, hmm, she's making fun of them to some extent. But then she's so empathically um, um, interested in, in them and, and really you feel her love for, uh, her, her love for them in, uh, in the way that you also start to love them. At least I do. Um, I love both Tamba and Yasha as well as a, uh, yeah, for my life. But, um, but the topic of female friendship isn't that, it isn't that common, actually. You have some very strong books about female friendship and smart, intelligent, intelligent girls finding their brilliant friend um, and how that develops and how, how fascinating to live that life is. But, but I think that's really strong in the novel. I mean, no matter if it's Zimbabwean and post-colonial African or, or, or whatever, it's just uh, um, a very good literary theme that hasn't been that much explored and that Dangaramga really puts uh, forward and, and makes so interesting. Also because these are two characters that... They t we follow Tambu the closest because she has the, the, the voice. But uh, you, can, you sense that they are fascinated by each other, but they're also um, they're each other's opposites in some sense, and that sort of fascination and, uh, and um, development of, of love is really, it's so good writing, and it's, uh, it's um, mm. worth to read the book for its own. Yeah, I mean, we used the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the title of, of of this conversation is My Brilliant Friend from Zimbabwe, uh, referring to the Naples quartet by Elena Ferrante. Uh, and you, I mean, you even mentioned it in, in, uh, yeah, the in, same in, thing in your in book. book yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, what uh, other dimensions of female friendship do we see when we, uh, when we if we add this, this book to the mix, Masa? If we I add mean, like, Elena I mean, Ferrante, considering, yeah, comparing, if we when we add nervous conditions and uh, the relationship between Yasha and yeah. uh, and uh, Tambu. Yeah. What I found wonderful about this relationship between Yasha and, and Tambu was uh, what I thought with Tsitsi's very political decision not to make these young girls rivals with each other, to make them allies in a family. Because I think it's so, it would be so easy to pit one girl who's so different, who's had all the privileges of, of one kind of life against a girl who grew up in a village um, and maybe is more comfortable in her community than this girl who, who went to school in England um, is. So I, it was a very deliberate choice, I felt, and an awareness by Tsitsi that um, it is possible to be 
female and African and within a society that is subjugating and oppressing you and not turn against each other as women and as, as girls, that you could build alliances where you help each other in this world. Uh, and I found that, um, I found it refreshing and, and really um, provocative. Um, I mean, if we talk about Elena Ferrante, uh, and my brilliant friend, you see again and again the, the, the tension between these two girls, the push and pull, the way one admires but resents the other. And um, Tsitsi has, has forged something quite, quite special in the relationship between these two girls. And I, I appreciated it and, it, and it felt to me... Um, like a kind of, if books are supposed to teach us how to live, and if books are supposed to inspire us to create the kinds of relationships we see in them, then I think um, this friendship was something that, that I really took to heart and hope to emulate. And especially with the char- both characters, actually, are so incredibly competitive as people so it it kind of speaks against their character that they have this incredible bond but they do anyway which i think is quite beautiful um i thought we'd also talk a little bit about the title nervous conditions um can you run us through tonya where where does this title come from or how did she how did it come about Mm. well uh herself um herself say says that she just stumble across the title in the latest drafts or in the when she was writing her very last drafts or something like that but it's a very very interesting title because um she takes it from Jean Paul Sartre's uh, uh preword to Franz Fanon's uh Wretched of the Earth so this is a french philosopher uh, introducing uh, uh, one of the major uh, major post-colonial thinkers of yeah and revolutionary and revolutionary right? uh, yeah. and uh, and all that and yeah and um, and such uh, says that the condition of the native is a nervous condition uh, upheld by something and upheld by his consent opposed by the settler and I'm, and upheld by his consent I think it is and so what she does is to to um, add the plural, nervous conditions, uh, to to her title. But she also uh, puts uh, the line, paraphrases, paraphrases the line in the epigraph in the book, and she drops the apple with this consent uh, thing, and also the settler thing. So um, what you can say, she... she um, um, concentrates more on the black community than the opposition between the the blacks and the whites in Zimbabwe th- at that time. And she also adds the plural, which you can say is, is also about um, highlighting the gender, the gender um, aspects of the native, which in both Sartre's and Fanon's writing is, you know, implicitly male. The native is the, the, the male person. And the settler is the male person, and and she she opens up, um, she narrows down because she's focusing on her, her universe and the female community. Some, if you can say so, the female characters at least. Um, but she opens up the the um, more stereotypical or or political um, discourse 
to uh, aspects of, of uh, feminism and gender quest questions of gender. Mm. It's really interesting that she takes away the consent bit, but I guess also it's relevant because all these like children are faced with the consequences of empire on their psyche and in part being sort of destroyed by empire throughout the novel. So the idea of consent when you're talking about children is perhaps uh, might, might be why she removed it. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. But, yeah. And it's also the part with the, s the set it's imposed by the settlers. I think so she, mm. she scraps the, <laughs> the Englishman <laughs> and, and uh, all those people has been yeah. there. It's so. a nervous condition. Yeah. Uh, Yes, yeah. she focuses. Um, yeah. I think it's very important to say that she focuses also on the on the female body, as you said, and and the nervous tensions and that is uh, produced within the family um, because of uh, the, the uh, patriarchal structures mm -hmm. in the family and society as well. But I guess the part where it becomes um, really messy is when when we move on in time and uh, the Book of Not, which is the second volume of the trilogy. Uh, which takes place, um, I mean, it takes place uh, during the height of the, or at the, towards the end of the, of the liberation war in Zimbabwe, uh, and, and it ends sort of in a liberated Zimbabwe. And uh, uh, I guess it, without revealing too much for those who would like to read it, I mean, it's fair to say that the nervous conditions uh, continue. A sequel, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in in the Book of Not, and I mean in the post-liberation Zimbabwe. Um, uh, maybe the consent part should be added again. I mean, uh, or what? What is it that I mean? Everything is not happy just because it's been liberated, right? Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> in the book of not. Um, the thing that interested me with the move from nervous conditions to the book of not is actually you pointed out the subject, the I, that opens nervous conditions. In the book of not, it opens with the you, which then comes back in this mournable body as well, which is written entirely in the second person, which is uh, quite unique while people do it, but not often. Uh, but the you comes right at the beginning of the Book of Knots. So there's kind of this sort of uh, sort of an approximation, perhaps, in the sense that it draws in the reader, but also a distancing from the subject, I think, uh, which is uh, quite interesting. But yeah, that's where the war properly comes in. But what, what, is the, what, is, what happens when you change from the I to the you in this book? I always say that I hate second-person narration, but I, I handled it with Sitsi. <laughs> Mainly because it's usually... Well, I think I'm just uh, easily annoyed, and I don't like it when people say, you're sitting in a chair, and I go, no, I'm not actually sitting in a chair. I'm standing up reading this or whatever, so I find it frustrating. Uh, <laughs> but uh, because she plays with the perspective in that way and moves this uh, narrator, this first very powerful first person narrator into the second person. That to me is, is really interesting. Uh, it's a moving away from, from her and towards me, perhaps. Is it a kind of universalization? I'm, I'm thinking out loud, uh, but yeah. What did you guys think about the move from the I to the you? I thought it was absolutely heartbreaking. Why? <laughs> yes, true. It's the most <laughs> heartbreaking change of perspective. 
I've ever read. And uh, um, it's, I think it's because um, it's because of how I read the the I, the I narration, uh, the first person narration, in uh, in nervous conditions. I guess because um, I've always found that so powerful and and um, and great how it's. Uh, it's written in in uh, in first person, and it's it's girl talking about the I, and and she's yeah she's um, um, she's not always uh, the best <laughs> a character, but she's uh, she's her, she has the voice, and she has the voice, and I think that's so um, uh, um, uh, fundamental. Uh, but then, when in this uh, third book, um, where Tambu is, I guess, 45 or something, or she's at, at least she's in in Harare in uh, must be around 2000 or so. Um, and the whole of the narration is cast in this you. Uh, I just f- and she's so um, lonely and miserable. And uh, during the first chapters, she's thinking about ending her life, and it's really depressing. And the whole thing is cast in you, and I thought, oh my god, Tambu, this is not good at all. Because she just lost, uh, lost all her power. And, and Gangremga just distanced herself um, in some way to that uh, character, which I also found very uh, moving or emotional, because it's so <laughs> depressing, the stories. I mean, it's read against um, nervous conditions, it's so depressing, mm. because in nervous conditions you have all kinds of problems and family dramas and I mean it's not a happy story but but at least this is the story about a young it's a buildings novel it's a de- it's a story of development and then you have this disillusioned uh, tambu is really not a very good place or person at all and it then it's costing you and I thought oh. <laughs> it's really it's, sad it's, so it's um, uh, do we agree it's it's her distancing herself from the from the character, or at some point, I mean, it, you can also, I mean, it's almost as if through through that last book that she, um, there's more similarities between Nyasha in the last book and Sitsi's own life, which she's rather clear about in her new essay collection, which she will talk about tomorrow. Uh, uh, Nyasha is the one running an uh, um, uh, NGO for women in media and the arts, uh, she's the one with a belief in like changing the system, whereas Tambu is disillusioned, to say the least. Um, is it is it this distancing? What did you think of it, Masa? Uh, I was trying to imagine um, what it's like as a writer to move from first person to second person to that you, uh, and how. I was trying to think about how how I envision that move. Like, what does that move look like physically? Um, and what I imagine is Tambu in front of a mirror, obviously, you know, talking to herself, you, but on the other side of the mirror, which she can see right through, is the rest of us. So that it's you and you which is both I and you, and it's also we. Um, and I, what happens with that, it's an uncomfortable way to read. 
like you were saying, Mary, <laughs> because when you read that, even I just said you. So <laughs> when we read that you, um, we're reminding ourselves, oh, it's not me, it's not me. But then the longer it goes, the closer you have to become to that subject. And it's an uncomfortable place to be because it sets us right next to the main character at the same time as that main character is distancing themselves from themselves. Mm -hmm. Then there's a double consciousness that begins to, um, begins to develop. And we are in the middle of that as a bridge, if that makes sense. I was trying Absolutely to imagine is. what that looks like on, in real life. Um, and I think that the discomfort is that when a writer can use the second person, I think the writer can actually become much more brutal in that you can, the first person gives you a very limited perspective, but the minute you say you, you suddenly know a lot more because you're standing outside of yourself. Um, and you see more and you say more and you can be more cruel uh, because it's not just the I, it's also all of us that, that's being talked to. If, yeah, mm. if that <laughs> I've talked in a circle. <laughs> I think it, it makes perfect sense to okay. me, yeah, but uh, uh, who knows? Um, uh, but I mean, it's it's also extraordinary. Speaking of of how things change with this trilogy that has been written, oh, I mean, it spans thirty years or more, even. But it's also written over thirty years uh, in real life, so to say. I mean, we may be talking about a quartet. I'm hoping secretly <laughs> uh, because maybe she will write more. Uh, but um, so something obviously changes with her perspective on it. Um, uh, but how? I mean, Mariam, you're the most recent reader <laughs> in the in the audience or in the in the group. I mean, uh, what do you think happens when when it's read today? And this this like, I mean. When, when, when it came out, the, uh, when Nervous Conditions came out, when, it, when the trilogy started, um, the wounds of the, of the liberation war were still very fresh. And, um, and, and this was very contested ground. Uh, uh, now it's, it's far, far away. Even Mugabe has passed. Uh, uh, it's a new Zimbabwe or something. Uh, uh, wh how, wh what is it like to read it today, do you think, in that sense? It's a mark of good literature that it, it's not just a historical document, I guess, that can happen to books sometimes. But to me, what was fascinating, reading it now, having read quite a lot of books in this similar sort of post-colonial uh, thread, it was a story that I recognized that I think, as Tonya said as well, was new at the time. But right now, I've, uh, you know, this story is quite recognizable to me, but it's still sub Verted my expectations all the time, <laughs> which I thought was impressive for a, for a, um, a book that was written, uh, you know, over 20 years ago, uh, well, 30 years ago. Um, so I thought it takes this like hero's journey, this like growing up and it subverts it all the time. It takes a hopeful story about youth. I think the first book is so hopeful and it just like kills you because uh, the second and the third one are really hopeless um i think i want to say that they're not but but they are very hopeless um and i guess we're speaking now 
perhaps in a hopeful day, knowing, as Matza just said, that um, Sitsid was just uh, acquitted. Um, but similarly, in England, where I uh, live normally, people are being arrested for disturbing the peace, for holding up a blank placard, you know. Uh, it's, it's getting a bit scary in England in terms of the right to protest, um, which I was thinking about as you were talking. So I think we're, we live in a time where... Uh, these things are still highly relevant. Um, yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, from an American perspective, it's it, it's terrifying. Uh, the the um, yeah, and this book I think uh, can speak to new generations because it's what we what I realized in reading. By the time I got to the end of uh, nervous conditions, uh, and understood that this is a book that had placed the war further back and yet it's it's felt it's a felt absence in in that book there's still the tensions that that come from that and it feels very pertinent to um i w what's happening in the uk but what's happening around the world as well um, I mean, uh, like I mentioned last year, Dagaramgo was included in the future library and she came to Oslo and she spoke in the forest where the trees are growing to produce the books. Uh, she had submitted a book that will be only published in a or released in a hundred years from now. And she, you spent her time uh, her, uh, in the forest reflecting on the relationship between time and nature and so on. And then for this week's program here at the House of Literature, she was... Uh, she was the one who, uh, who suggested uh, a focus on uh, nature, uh, climate change, climate justice, uh, speaking to the times that we live in, um, uh, which uh, I thought would, was, I mean, we could take it as a kind of a challenge for us to read uh, her books also for, uh, for uh, the purpose of, of understanding nature and uh, um, I thought it was striking, at least, just to start, that um, uh, to reread Nero's conditions in that perspective, to be become like more aware of the nature. Uh, but maybe that's just me and not being a very good reader, because you probably noticed it straight away. Um, but what can we say about um, the role of nature in her uh, in in this body of work? I didn't want to say it when you asked me the other question because I didn't want to ruin your next question. <laughs> because that is one of the things that I found really interesting about reading all the books back to back is the development of uh, Dangaramga's relationship to nature uh, as a source of, of capital and money right at the beginning of Nervous Conditions uh, because, you know, uh, the narrator uh, grows her maze and that helps her uh, get into the school that she wants giving away she the first. She has to raise her own school yeah. money, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so she literally grows her own school money uh, or her, her own school fees. And then in the book of Not, um, there is this amazing description of the rain just like continuing. It rains a lot during this very violent period. And she talks about the rain sort of washing away blood, but also making all the na of, of all the trees more and more green. Uh, and the, it's said that that's because the ancestors are supporting their fight for freedom, etc. 
But then in this mournable body, again, with this like continuous uh, hopelessness, um, nature is something uh, quite threatening. There are scenes of ants like crawling all over Tumble's body. Uh, this every time she's nervous, you might say. <laughs> there are these descriptions of ants that are quite quite horrible. Uh, but then, uh, the, yeah, I guess you can talk about the ecotourism as well as we'll get to that. Yeah, but I mean, we'll also the it, hyenas. Yeah. Oh, and the hyena. Oh, I had a point about hyenas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> um, which is more, I think, about gender. I guess I think it's interesting that hyenas are used there because I think in medieval, one of my backgrounds is medieval literature, and in uh, some Latin and Arabic encyclopedias, hyenas are uh, have double sexes, so they're uh, both male and female. Sometimes they can switch to their kind of gender-bending characters, and sometimes they are both genders. Um, and I found it quite interesting in a book that is very much about women taking the place of men and also continuously also talking about women sort of becoming men in the war through violence, that's mentioned a few times, to have the hyena be this uh, character that's constantly like uh, coming out and speaking to Tumble in these terrifying ways. It's very cool. I really loved it. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry. No, no, no. That was it. Where would you like to pick it up? <laughs> Hyenas or... Well, I mean, I... If we go back to nervous conditions, um, uh, the river also, as a place that she comes, I mean, which is her childhood, so to speak. Yeah, the river is a place of freedom, so to speak. Uh, and, and also, um, yeah, the childhood before, before becoming a woman, uh, the freedom of the body and freedom of just swimming and being with the friends and not being uh, your all, all your... Oh, everything you have to do is so regulated uh, after, but uh, but going to the river and swimming with the friends, and also the other women use the rivers, the river as a place to um, to take a break or to go if they are sad or lonely, and you can hide there and you can pretend you're taking your your clothes, washing them and drying them in the sun, and then you have a break for some hours while the clothes are are dried. So the river is very important, but I think also when you talked about um, how she raises her own money um, to go to school, it's also closely connected to the stories her grandmother tells her, and, um, and which I think is an uh, important difference between how Tambu and Nyasha um, develops um, through the first novel uh, very differently, where it's seemingly, at least, Tambu seems to be on top of everything, while Mayasha seems to have to struggle a lot. Um, because um, Tambu has this close closeness to not only nature, but the stories of her family, which she has been giving through from her grandmother, telling them also more or less like a fairy, fairy tale, but connecting Tambu to the earth and the ground and um, the nature, if you want. And I keep thinking about um, the ways that uh, Tambu and her family interact with the river, with the crops, with the land. What happens when that land becomes polluted by the corporations that eventually will move in there? What happens to people who can no longer use 
that river. You can't swim in there. I mean, these are things, climate change from an African perspective. Um, is, I don't know if we talk about that enough. Uh, what we see sometimes are the, the end results of that, which is that people whose land has become so saturated with the poisons from these different oil companies and these different industries, the flower industries, I can say, in Ethiopia, um, that use all these chemicals that then become unhealthy for the people who have to work on that land or in those companies in order to, to support their families, um, then they have to move because now the land can't sustain them. And then we have these displaced communities with nowhere to go, except maybe out of the country. And then it begins this cycle that we eventually hear about in the United States or, or through Europe saying, and you have politicians saying, why are these people coming here? And yet you just trace the money or you trace the companies, you trace the oil, and it leads you right back to the land that belonged to the people. Um, and I didn't want to ask, I didn't want to say this because it's a question I'm going to ask Tsitsi tomorrow, so pretend you didn't hear it. <laughs> but um, what does climate change look like from a black female African perspective? What is climate justice? Um, what does climate justice look like from a female perspective, no matter where you are? Uh, and I think that we, um, it's, it's an important conversation and, and it's something that I'm really glad Tsitsi has, has highlighted. Uh, we don't know necessarily all the answers to that, uh, but when I think of Tambu, I think of the river, I think of the land, I think of the maize that she may not have been able to grow if that land had been contaminated. And then you see that a future is then impacted. You can talk about an absence of oil as well as an absence of war, I guess, and nervous conditions. Yeah. yeah. How? In the sense that, well, reading it now, you know what might happen in the future, and that's a sort of tragedy that looms as a reader. Um, yeah. That's, and that's something that has changed. Yeah. Mm. I mean, fortunately, we will, we will get really interesting answers to both that question from you uh, tomorrow from Tsitsi. Please uh, come and tomorrow. And also uh, Nonkle Mbutuma, who's um, yeah. an activist from South Africa, from the Amapondo, uh, who has been resisting both mining and, and uh, oil uh, drilling in her, um, in, her, uh, 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 in her village. Uh, and um, uh, but I mean, what one thing we can do is to to look at uh, the way it's suggested by Tsitsi in this mournable body, as you mentioned, Mariam. I mean, um, the job that finally lands with with Tambu uh, when she's at her most desperate um, is, and it's ironically, it's by it's Tracy from from the college that uh, from the from the school that she goes to, um, uh, that kind of comes in surfing on this wave of like entrepreneurial uh, eco-tourism, which is the, 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 the thing uh, in, at the turn of the millennium in Zimbabwe, um, sort of captures the zeitgeist, I guess. Um, uh, but I mean, uh, what <laughs> what do you think uh, Tsitsi is trying to say with this 
exploring or what what can we lead from this uh, uh, job that Tambu gets? Anyone like to make a, make a, an attempt? It reminded me of Jamaica Kincaid. What's her essay called? Uh, no, I don't remember actually, but it's about tourism. The small place. A small place, yeah. <laughs> and that was on my mind the whole time of reading that last bit, which is, I guess, not a, not a very positive uh, view of, of tourism. And I guess this idea of Tracy's sort of ethical capitalism that she's really into, she goes on, they work at a, an advertising agency together before this ecotourism venture. Uh, and Tracy feels disillusioned by just making more money for horrible people and wants to make a lot of money but also be a good person. <laughs> and then you can, I guess, discuss whether or not that, that's even possible at all. Mm. Uh, <laughs> the ironies are so dense. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like it's very dense, it's very dense. I mean, and there's a whole, uh, there's a whole like, sub-discipline now in, in environmental studies, which is quite predominant in South Africa, for instance, where they talk a lot about what they call green-whiteness, uh, where you have, um, uh, because you will see, like, for instance, you will see, like, I mean, environmentalism is sort of framed in South Africa in many ways as white. Uh, you will have bumper stickers on cars, big SUVs, saying, uh, save a rhino, kill a poacher, for instance. Um, the poacher always obviously being a, a black person, right? Um, uh, so many layers to the, those kinds of, yeah. I also think it's important to add that just like with uh, in nervous conditions with the uh, stories of the grandmother, which is tied to nature, here also c culture is very much tied to nature. It's not just like nature is capitalism, colonialism and I mean exploit exploitation of nature, but it's also making a culture product. And in the end, as I read it, also Tambu is made into a, a product for consumption. She's a, she's a product herself. And her, her, her blackness is not so frightening. It's interesting to the tourists because she's also educated. So finally, she sort of made this amazing merge of those difficult things to, to combine earlier. But then it's just into this hopeless uh, identity as a commodity, and as which and is kind of making fun of whole of her right. community and the village. And, and a sort of like full mother. circle uh, displaying her own village as natives, mm -hmm. so to speak. Authentic. Yeah. Authentic, yeah. yeah. And so lots of stuff there to <laughs> pick up on uh, in the coming days. Um, our time uh, is, has come to an end, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, uh, Masa, you will be back with Sitsi Dagaramgua tomorrow, uh, discussing her new essay collection, Black and Female. Uh, and there's much more. And uh, in just an hour, Masanda Nchanga, who's a brilliant young author from South Africa, will discuss with uh, Julia Vedloka um, uh, about speculative fiction, apartheid pasts, and dystopic futures. So. Stay for that if you like, uh, but please join me in uh, thanking Masa Mengiste, Tony Wall, Maria Midis. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. 
You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotheque.